will never give in on voting rights. If Stacey Abrams doesn't win in Georgia, they stole it. It's clear. Hey, guess what, Senator? Yep. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in From the Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, in Cottage Grove on Queso, and in Eugene on KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening pleasure on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Coming up in a bit here, the great Heather Digby Parton will finally be joining us for our post-election post-mortem that I had hoped to have with her last week but was forced to push off given all of the electoral and tabulation nightmares that we have been covering pretty much nonstop since Election Day almost two weeks ago. And yes, we are still covering that with some more news on some more called races and the continuing so-called hand count in Florida and Some news just breaking here out of Georgia that I will try to have for you shortly as we make sense of it, as it is literally just coming in right now. But first, after we got off air from our previous broadcast, uh, some numbers that when I saw them come across the wires uh, last night, I thought must have been a typo. First, the... Death toll in the California wildfires was increased to 63. That was horrific already and a national record. But what I thought must have been a typo, Desi Doyen, uh, was what came after that. A staggering 631 now reported to be missing or otherwise accounted for? Unaccounted for, yes, correct. The uh, sheriff of Butte County, which is where the town of Paradise, California, was located before it was obliterated by the fire. He did say that there were uh, reasons for that. Much of it is as they're collating missing persons reports. The list uh, also, the, the number of people who are still looking for, who are unaccounted for, Uh, has increased to 631, and this number uh, increased by 501 people. And I want to explain a little bit about how that increased from last night. 
in addition to taking information uh, from people who call in, uh, the call takers are adding that information in, but now we're going back through uh, all of the uh, records, CAD, RMS records, computer dispatch records that were generated during the most intense uh, portions of this event uh, when people were calling 911 and we were logging information in there. And so we've gone through and mined all that data and now collected it. And the reason that that number went up is because after they gave me the 130 number, which I reported to you, they didn't stop working. They continued to work uh, into the night and then ultimately they updated it. And again, there are a lot of people displaced and we're finding that a lot of people don't know that we're looking for them. That was the uh, sheriff of Butte County, uh, Corey uh, Honey. Honey. Corey Honey. We're talking about uh, this alarming increase in the number of uh, missing or unaccounted for in the Northern California fires up there in Butte County. Uh, 631. Now, uh, the number had been around, uh, I think, 200 overall. So for that number to be increasing, Des, this many days into this national disaster, that's very troubling. It usually is coming down at at, At this this point. point. Yes. In the in the recovery process, but it is not, and uh, and that is extremely troubling. And I have a feeling we are going to have very uh, very uncomfortable, disturbing, sad news uh, coming out as the investigation continues. We could be looking at hundreds potentially dead potentially. in these fires, something that we have never seen the likes of. Uh, and again, n- there has been no rain in more than two hundred days up in Northern California. Incredibly dry conditions after years of climate change fueled uh, drought in this uh, state. I have no words for that, uh, frankly, and uh, other than to say we will uh, continue to watch that uh, just horrific, tragic, devastating story out here in California. All right. uh, Before we get to uh, some of the electoral news, which will actually help cleanse our palate perhaps today, a quick follow up on a story that we covered a day or two ago regarding the CNN lawsuit against the White House. For barring uh, White House correspondent Jim Acosta from covering the president of the United States, largely because Donald Trump doesn't like the questions that Jim Acosta asks. Uh, it, it seemed, at least to me, uh, to be a blatant violation of the First Amendment uh, protections for the press. Even Fox News seemed to agree with that in writing an amicus brief to support CNN. And on Friday, even a Trump-appointed federal judge now appears to agree with at least part of CNN's argument. Federal ju- the uh, federal judge, U.S. District Court Judge Timothy Kelly, ordered the Trump administration on Friday to immediately return the White House press credentials of Jim Acosta, though a lawsuit over the credentials revocation is still continuing. Uh, After CNN had sued, they asked Judge Kelly to issue a temporary restraining order forcing the White House to give back Acosta's credentials. The judge agreed that uh, that should be done, and that happened on Friday. The judge, however, did not rule on the underlying case. He had ordered Acosta's pass to be returned for now, in part because he said that CNN was likely to prevail at least on its Fifth Amendment claims here. That's a due process and the claim that Acosta had not received sufficient notice or even explanation before his credentials were revoked or even been given an opportunity to respond before they were. 
So no due process by the government in this case. The White House, which had given several shifting explanations over the past week for why Acosta's credentials were revoked and about who actually made the decision to take away his press pass, the White House said that it would be developing new rules at this time for orderly press conferences. Speaking to reporters after the decision, Trump said, uh, quote, if they don't listen to the rules and regulations... I guess once they create such rules and regulations, we will end up back in court and we will win, said Trump. He later added, we want total freedom of the press. It's very important to me, more important to me than anybody would believe. Mm-hmm. That part's true. <laughs> that part, I agree with him, more than anyone would believe, uh, he said. But you have to act with respect when you're in the White House. Um can I just note uh, yeah. that no White House previously in U.S. history has ever had to establish any rules for the press room? Uh, well, that's where we <laughs> so are. That's where we are. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, you have to act. You have to be respectful. But I don't know that. Uh, I mean, has anybody has Donald Trump read the tweets that are coming out of the White House from <laughs> the president of the United States? Does he has he met Donald Trump? Not to mention, yeah, his own behavior towards journalists there. Uh, the Trump-appointed judge emphasized the, quote, very limited nature of the ruling on Friday, noting that he had not determined that the First Amendment was violated. Seems hard to believe he couldn't, but, you know, he was appointed by Donald J. Trump. So I expect we'll see a lot of these sorts of decisions in the years ahead. All right, let's do this. Let's uh, take a quick break so I can uh, catch up and figure out what exactly is now going on in Georgia. Got some other election news to cover as well. And uh, Heather Digby Parton will be joining us in uh, just a little bit to talk about this entire fine mess. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. No, our, our coverage of election 2018 is not over. Not by a long shot, I'm afraid. Not with fights and recounts continuing and still several undecided races and runoff elections now coming up in just a few days. Don't look so happy about that, Desi Doyen. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm glad that people are still voting and still out there working it. Yes, they are. First, let's start with some encouraging uh, uh, news here. It's official. Uh, well, AP is calling it anyway. Democrat Katie Porter captured a Republican-held U.S. House seat on Thursday in the heart of what was once Southern California's Reagan country, extending a route of the state's GOP House delegation that may not yet be over. Porter's upset in Orange County is a sign of changing times, says AP, in a region of this state once known nationally as a GOP fortress. 
The uh, coastal county southeast of L.A. was home to President Richard Nixon and President Ronald Reagan. Porter is a law professor, a protege of Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren. She defeated Republican Congresswoman Mimi Walters, who was reelected in a walk just two years ago in the 45th District. Porter campaigned on an unabashed liberal agenda, as AP describes it, and in direct opposition to Donald Trump's priorities. She had called for overturning his tax cuts. She supports universal health care. She endorses mandatory background checks on all gun sales and a ban on so-called assault-style weapons. And she won in Orange County, Orange County, California, on that position. The district has a seven-point Republican registration edge, and uh, Walters had been reelected by 17 points back in 2016. With uh, Porter's win here, Democrats have now picked off three GOP seats, either all or partly in Orange County. They're threatening to win yet another district that is still being tallied. Democrat Gil Cisneros uh, could uh, looks likely now, frankly, to win that still uncalled race against Republican Young Kim in the 39th district. This is a county, Orange County, if you don't know it, that was once a uh, holy ground, as AP calls it, Republican holy ground. They will not have a single GOP representative in Congress if Cisneros wins. Last night, Cisneros took the lead in vote counting against Kim. So uh, three out of four so far, um, it's looking more and more likely that, you know, Every congressperson in Orange County will now be a Democrat. Now, every state, you know, if you're not if you don't know California, every state, I'm sure, has their most Republican areas. Think of that area in your state and imagine if it flipped entirely from red to blue, because that's what appears to have uh, happened here or is about to have happened here. Uh, previously, the seat long held by Republican Daryl Issa was called for Democrat Mike Levin. Democrat Harley Ruda ousted the 15-term Congressman Dana Rohrbacher, also in Orange County in the 48th District. So with Porter's win now, Democrats will hold at least a 44-9 edge. 44-9. In U.S. House seats in California's uh, 53 congressional districts, they hold every statewide office here, a supermajority in both chambers of the state legislature, and, by the way, a 3.7 million uh, voter advantage in voter registration. So that brings the Democratic pickup in the U.S. House so far to 36 seats, with three more undecided that are leaning their way for a likely pickup of 39 seats total. But there are still a few other undecided races in Georgia, in Texas, in New York that still could go the Democrats way. But 39 seats is now starting to look pretty solid for the Democrats. Uh, we will discuss what that means and what it doesn't for them with uh, Digby here in a few moments. Uh, but first, let's move to Florida before we get to the breaking news out of Georgia. Uh, in Florida, what suffices in that state for a hand recount, those are now underway across the state of votes that were not 
readable by the computer scanners, the, uh, the computer tabulators. They use paper ballots across most of Florida, but they're scanned by computers. And now there is a hand count in the U.S. Senate race between incumbent Democratic uh, Senator Bill Nelson and his Republican challenger, the termed-out Governor Rick Scott. That counting will continue for the next few days here, with Scott finishing the machine count up by just 0.17%. Just over 12,000 votes out of more than 8 million cast in the Sunshine State. So before whatever changes are discovered in the next few days in the hand counts, uh, the machine recounted totals uh, will be used towards that final tally in all but three of the largest Democratic-leaning counties, where the Republican Secretary of State, that's Ken Detzner, handpicked by Rick Scott, he found ways to pretty much prevent their so their new so-called recounted machine tallies from being used. As the New York Times reports, confusion and disorder reigned through much of the five-day machine recount, uh, which, as one source in Palm Beach County told me today, that is by design. Uh, these absurd deadlines, she said, that this machine count, you know, had to be done in like five days. California isn't even doing done doing its first count out here. So they had the machine count five days. The hand count now must be done by Sunday. And remember, they had three statewide races to count in the machine uh, recounts and several local races as well. In any event, uh, she told me that these deadlines uh, that they codified into law, that Republicans codified into law in Florida, set up big counties like Palm Beach to fail. How a county like ours, she says, with a population of 1.3 million, has the same deadline as a county like Liberty County with with a population of 8,400 is beyond me. She says five days is not enough. A week isn't enough. Two weeks isn't enough. This, she says, is by design. Why? Because the biggest counties are blue counties in Florida and they don't want those votes counted. It's not complicated, she says. Now, we already reported on uh, our previous show that Palm Beach County was unable to finish in time. That machine recount simply because their old scanners cannot physically scan that many ballots in the time that was allotted. They worked around the clock, but they couldn't even finish even one of the counts, the U.S. Senate race, much less uh, the other statewide uh, uh, machine counts as well. So their original scan tallies will be used. And uh, the New York Times reports that authorities in Hillsborough County, another Democratic county, another big one, said that they could not submit recount totals because their new tally on the same computer scanners had 846 fewer votes than the original counted ballots for some reason that is still unknown. So they had a discrepancy and there's no time to go back and figure out what happened. Right. Got to hurry. So we're going to use the original numbers instead. Right or wrong. Who knows? The office had two power failures in Hillsborough County during that machine recount that may have led to the discrepancy, according to officials there. But you know what? Who knows? And then in Broward County, another Democratic stronghold in Florida, they were quite literally two minutes late in getting their machine recount uh, numbers to the secretary of state, 
failing to make the 3 p.m. deadline on Thursday by two minutes. The election director in Broward had uploaded the results just two minutes late due to a, quote, unfamiliarity with the state's website. So the state did not accept the recounted numbers. The For official, no other reason. Yeah. The, the, the official uh, said, basically, I just worked my ass off for nothing. That official is correct. And then finally, we get to Georgia and the uh, breaking news out of there just minutes before airtime uh, that I'm uh, trying to make sense of here. Uh, let me start earlier on, on Friday. Georgia Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams had said she was considering an unprecedented challenge to the election uh, under state law in Georgia by asking a court to intervene in the race against Republican Brian Kemp and to order an extraordinary new vote, a second round of voting in response to charges of election irregularities. The long shot strategy was first reported on Friday morning by the AP as uh, Georgia election officials had been ready to certify Brian Kemp as the winner in this contest, where Kemp, as Secretary of State, had pulled just about every voter suppression tactic in the book to prevent the popular Stacey Abrams from becoming the nation's first female African-American governor. The uh, long-shot strategy would have relied on a statute that has never been used in a uh, gubernatorial contest. A team of almost three dozen lawyers were examining uh, a ream of affidavits from voters and would-be voters who said they were disenfranchised, and they were deciding whether to go to court under a provision of Georgia election law that allows losing candidates to challenge results based on, quote, misconduct, fraud, or irregularities sufficient to change or place in doubt the results. Now, the results, in my mind, are certainly in doubt in this race after what Kemp did, after the 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen systems that voters were forced to use at the polls on Election Day and in early voting. But Abrams would have had uh, to be able to prove that enough of these uh, irregularities, as they call them, had occurred to raise the possibility that at least 18,000 Georgians either had their ballots thrown out or were not allowed to vote. A tall, a tall task to be able to prove. Now, on our previous broadcast, we played the infuriating story of 92-year-old uh, African-American uh, Christine Jordan, who, after voting at the same polling place for the last 50 years, since 1968, she suddenly went to vote this year and found she was no longer registered for some reason. And even worse, she was told by poll workers that because she was not found on the books, she would not even be allowed to cast a provisional ballot, which everyone is entitled to cast. Thankfully, her granddaughter had taken her to the polls and, and, and started calling the election protection hotline, who told her that she could demand a provisional ballot, which her grandmother, 92-year-old African-American, was finally allowed to cast after two and a half hours at the polling place trying to work this out. But how many didn't get to do so? We don't know. And I don't know if we ever will. Um, and I don't know if uh, Jordan's vote, by the way, was even ultimately counted or not. So, Abrams on Friday was considering this uh, unprecedented legal maneuver to challenge the results of the election. 
that was overseen by Brian Kemp, who appears now to be the winner. Uh, His office was preparing to announce him the winner of the governor's race after some eight years of suppression uh, under his command. Um, And, uh, well, the uh, challenge under state law would have been very difficult to pull off. It would have extended the deadline uh, and and uh, well, the the certification of the election for several weeks. But alas, just before airtime today, it appears that Abrams has decided not to take that route, ending her campaign for governor of Georgia, lamenting the irregularities that she said tainted the election. But uh, conceding that not conceding the race, but conceding that, in fact, Brian Kemp, the Republican here, would be declared the winner. She said she saw no legal path to overturn the results that the law currently allows no further viable remedy. Here she is making her announcement just before airtime today. I acknowledge that former Secretary of State Brian Kemp will be certified as the victor in the 2018 gubernatorial election. But to watch an elected official who claims to represent the people in this state baldly pin his hopes for election on the suppression of the people's democratic right to vote has been truly appalling. So let's be clear, this is not a speech of concession. Because concession means to acknowledge an action is right, true, or proper. As a woman of conscience and faith, I cannot concede that. But my assessment is the law currently allows no further viable remedy. Georgia still has a decision to make about who we will be in the next election and the one after that and the one after that. So we have used this election and its aftermath to diagnose what has been broken in our process. Make no mistake, the former Secretary of State was deliberate and intentional in his actions. I know that eight years of systemic disenfranchisement, disinvestment, and incompetence had its desired effect on the electoral process in Georgia. The antidote to injustice is progress. The cure to this malpractice is a fight for fairness in every election held, in every law passed, in every decision made. And I will not concede because the erosion of our democracy is not right. We will channel the work of the past several weeks into a strong legal demand for reform of our election systems in Georgia. And I will not waver in my commitment, a lived commitment, to work across party lines and across divisions to find a common purpose in protecting our democracy. And we will win because we are Georgia. And I promise you, we will get it done. Thank you. That was Stacey Abrams, candidate, Democratic candidate for the uh, for governor in Georgia, announcing that Brian Kemp would be the uh, winner of that election. Not that she was conceding, but that he would be certified as the winner. She also announced that she would be suing the state to challenge gross mismanagement of Georgia elections and uh, announced the creation of a new organization called Fair Fight Georgia to pursue election integrity and reform there. She said that she would, quote, file a federal lawsuit against the state for suppressing the vote of thousands of voters and to demand reforms to the electoral system. 
long overdue in Georgia. All right. Um, we got Heather Digby Parton standing by. Let me uh, get out here. Uh, I want to talk to her. A, a lot of good news to celebrate, if not what happened here in Georgia. We'll talk about that with Digby right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. She wore blue velvet, bluer than velvet was the night. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, it is now nearly two weeks, two weeks since Election Day, following the nation's crucial midterm elections. Democrats look set now to pick up nearly 40 seats in the U.S. House as they take control in January. Republicans lost about seven governor's mansions, including in places like Kansas, where GOP voter fraud fraudster and Trump protege Chris Kobach was trounced by Democrat Laura Kelly. And in Wisconsin, where Governor Scott Walker was finally sent packing by Democrat Tony Evers. And, as noted earlier, in places like Orange County, California, once a bastion of right-wing Reagan Republicans, where it now appears that every one of the county's four Republican House members have been unseated by Democrats. Democrats also took uh, two longtime Republican U.S. Senate seats in Nevada and what had been very red Arizona. Moreover, Democrats flipped about 300 state legislative seats across the country from red to blue, all of which will be crucial as we head towards 2020 and the crucial congressional redistricting that follows it and will affect elections for the next decade. Yes, Democrats had some disappointing losses, losing some key Senate races, uh, that were always known to be in danger and failing to unseat Ted Cruz in the Texas Senate race, an uphill battle in a very red state and losing uh, potentially. We don't yet know for certain, but it looks like it now. The uh, governor uh, and U.S. Senate race in Florida. Counting continues there. Uh, we do know that uh, Democrat Stacey Abrams just, if not conceded, has said that Brian Kemp, the Republican in Georgia, will uh, will take that governor's race. But it was a bona fide blue wave, despite the way that it has been characterized by some after Election Day, including Donald Trump, who called it a victory somehow for him and Republicans, even after he had predicted a red wave for November for months. The next day after the election, of course, he fired his attorney, his attorney general, Jeff Sessions. He replaced him with a loyalist lackey by the name of Matt Whitaker, who had previously called for special counsel Robert Mueller's probe of Trump to be shut down. 
Uh, and Trump has been generally pouting and becoming increasingly darker and more erratic in the days since the election, according to pretty much everyone's reports, firing a top administration officials, threatening to fire others. All of that as Democrats gear up for what will be a bevy of investigations in the U.S. House after the first of the year and have a bit of their own in-house bickering over leadership in the U.S. House as some Democrats have challenged whether Nancy Pelosi should remain as leader there to become the next Speaker of the House. Oh, politics. Joining us now, finally, to shed some light on all of this somehow, what it all means and where it goes from here, is our old friend, the great Heather Digby Parton, the uh, much-beloved blogger known as simply Digby, the proprietor of the long-running Hullabaloo blog, a contributor to Salon.com, and a winner of the Sidney Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. And I have been dying to speak with her ever since Election Day. Heather Digby Parton, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks for having me, Brett. I don't uh, I don't know what I was thinking, frankly, when I scheduled you to join us a day or two after the election, uh, <laughs> thinking there might be some time to discuss politics of the elections and what it all means. It was a, <clears throat> a lapse in judgment that uh, I thought I might have a few free moments uh, away from election integrity and vote counting disasters. So my apologies that I had to cancel last week with you for that reason. But I'm delighted to get a few minutes to talk about politics here. Uh, finally. So, with that uh, preamble, the most basic question that I would have asked you last week, if I had had the chance, right after Election Day, how'd the midterm elections go for Democrats <laughs> and progressives, well, <laughs> as you see it? Well, first of all, let me just say that I totally understand, because in you know this, our elections are always a mess, yep. and this one was particularly so because we have... Uh, a right-wing a, a Republican Party mm -hmm. that is now dedicated to uh, basically, you know, lying, committing fraud, mm -hmm. uh, stealing elections, and essentially trying to do what the Russians tried to do in 2016, according to the intelligence community, which is, um, you know, try and, and uh, bring doubt to the integrity of the electoral system, even when there is no doubt, and perpetuating it in places where they think it, it can be useful. So, you know, I, we really appreciate, I think, everybody who listens to your show and reads your uh, website uh, and listens to it in podcast form that, um, you know, we need you to be <laughs> to try and help us through this because it get, it's getting worse and worse, as you well know. So yeah. I appreciate it and don't in any way, you know, feel badly about not having me on right after the election. And in a way, it's probably good because the dust has been settling very slowly on mm -hmm. this election. You know, with vote by mail, early voting, you know, a lot of people doing absentee, uh, vote, you know, the vote count is never really solid on the night of the election. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just doesn't happen that way anymore, as we in California know, because yep. we have, you know, we, we, we're, we're notorious for counting our votes very slowly. But it, to my mind, I would much rather have that and have it be something that is, you know, solid and believable and there's no question about any of it, you know, mm -hmm. let count all the votes and do it properly and we'll all be fine. That's you know, a it's crazy not the end idea. of the world. Oh, I yeah, know. How weird, huh? Uh, yeah, and you know but, what? It's not slow, really. There's a lot of votes. A and lot of votes. 
we, we push vote by mail now everywhere, and so this takes time. The idea that, you know, California, we're not going to have our first official count until the first week of December, while Florida is already rushing through. They finished their first count. They're rushing through statewide recounts. It's just insane. You end up with an election that nobody ends up knowing who actually won or who actually lost. Well, right. I mean, you know, we went through this, and I'm sure that, you know, you started back in the the wake of the 2000 election, mm-hmm. analyzing all this stuff. And, you know, they have, the, and this is mostly Republicans who, as we know, through vote suppression throughout the country, gerrymandering, you know, all of the, you know, the, the sort of tricks that they use to try and, you know, mm-hmm. um, retain power without any kind of, you know, democratic mandate. Um, we know what they do, and in the case of Florida, it's all about these arbitrary deadlines, right? Oh, my God, you know, no, we can't count the votes because there's a deadline. And you're going, yeah, but that's just something people made up. It's not, right. <laughs> the, the, you know, the world won't end if you extend it so that we can count votes. Oh, no, mm-hmm. sorry, that's not Then They did that in 2000. They can, they're doing it this time. And, you know, what we found after the election, as it was a massive turnout, um, really unprecedented. I mean, I think it's like it goes back almost a century, or maybe yeah. even uh, over a century, since a midterm has had this percentage mm-hmm. uh, of the of, of voters turnout. Yeah. Um, so of course it's going to put a tremendous burden. They were probably unprepared for it um, to be this big, and so it's taking a while. And as these votes have been coming in, churning slowly in places like California and others, there's still races outstanding. It, of course, you know, changed the initial perception from the, the night of the election. If you and I had talked the next day, we would have been saying, well, you know, the Democrats did pretty well. I mean, they did. It was good. And they took the House. And I was on, and I was on other shows where I'm going, look, you know, all we needed was one, seat, one extra seat. That's all that matters. We have, you know, that we, the Democrats will have the House and we can do what we need to do. But the truth is, of course, it was a wave. Now, you know, I guess people thought it should be a tsunami, I, you know, meaning that it would have been 60 plus seats, which was never realistic. But it was kind of it kind of was a tsunami, uh, Heather. And I was actually I had been uh, trying to point this out, a that how long it takes to actually count all the votes now, uh, because largely because of vote by mail. But, you know, we're now looking at as many as 39 seats in the U.S. House. That is a bigger pickup for Democrats. Uh, than they have had for decades, including in 2006 after Iraq and Katrina. They only won 31 seats that year, and that was before the extreme partisan gerrymandering by Republicans after 2010. 39 seats in the U.S. House and all the other things I covered, that's a huge pickup. And yet I, I'm i not sure why Democrats, I know why media are downplaying it, but I'm, I'm not sure why so many Democrats don't seem to to get it. I don't either. And, you know, I mean, it's like they're looking at raw numbers. And, and because the Republicans won 60 seats, I mm-hmm. think, in, in 2010, you know, they're comparing that. What they're not realizing is, is that Democrats a lot more seats to win that were available to win because of the massive mm-hmm. win in 2008. Yep. When you look at the percentage it's a, of course, it's a tsunami. It's a huge blue wave. It's, it's massive, and it's also massive in the way that you look at the kind of seats that turned over. I mean, Orange County, California, which you mentioned, mm-hmm. that, that's Reagan country. It yeah. hasn't been Democratic, you know, in, in decades, 50 years or something. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. 
that 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 turned and it turned and it didn't just turn because there were a bunch of you know democrats who you know were used to be republicans and they came in and just switched and put a d after their name and they're really the same that is not what happened that these were progressives that won in uh, you know Katie Porter who beat Mimi Walters mm-hmm. in uh, I think it's California 45 she is a real progressive. I mean, she's an acolyte of Elizabeth Warren. Yep. And she beat a very right-wing Republican who, you know, she was on Trump's coattails <laughs> the whole time. Yep. And, uh, you know, this uh, there, there's a lot more analysis to be done about this. And obviously we can see that there's this weird suburban, urban, you know, this urban-suburban versus rural, exurban uh sort of divide that's mm-hmm. happening and it's happening across the board in red states and in blue states yep. and, and that's you know that's something very much worth thinking about and everybody's going to be talking about it endlessly but the fact is is that the democrats made huge inroads into places where republicans have traditionally won and it wasn't just a situation where they were turnovers in in uh, 2016 that weren't really solid, it, because Trump didn't really win in 2016. He did not win the popular vote in 2016. So he didn't bring a whole bunch of people in with him, new people that were there just sort of precariously. These were a lot of solid seats, and there were plenty of incumbents. And I want to... Yeah, no, no, go ahead. Finish, please. Oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just pointing out that, that, you know, when you look at, when you define a tsunami, or as I've sort of been referring, referring to it, one of those gigantic waves on the North Shore of Hawaii, mm-hmm. um, where they have to take a jet ski up there to bring the surfers on, that's the kind of wave it was. And, it, you know, it was gigantic. It was, you know, you cannot deny it. And, and the idea that anybody is trying to deny it, particularly in the Democratic Party, which we're seeing in yep. a little bit of our usual disarray. And, and that's actually what I want to get to, because I do want to talk to you also about Trump's reaction to this. But with oh, this yeah. huge victory in the U.S. House, some Democrats, and I'll let you characterize who you believe those Democrats are or are not, uh, have been moving to oppose Nancy Pelosi as the next House Speaker uh, when Dems take control of Congress in January. Um, well, your thoughts, on, without uh, pushing you one way or another, your thoughts on this uh, on this fight to depose Nancy Pelosi? Well, I think, first of all, let me preface my comments by just saying that you know, I think that there is a legitimate um, reason to for people to be pushing for a new generation of leadership to be groomed it, across the board, not mm-hmm. just for Nancy, but for all of the Democrat and in the in the Senate as well. By the way, not just in the in the House, but you know, this is something as we can see the new people that came in in this election. It's a signal to the party. Look, you've got a new. Um, you know, you've got, you've got a new caucus here, you've got a new uh, coalition, and you need to take account of that, and this needs to be done. So having said that, I'm absolutely for it. I think it's a good idea. But I do not believe that the media portrayal of what's going on in the Democratic Party, which is that, you know, progressives are, you know, they want to get rid of Nancy Pelosi, they want to put in their people, and this is all, you know, just their, it's it's the progressive tea party. I keep hearing people say that. Mm -hmm. It is. It's not progressive, though. It's right wing. The people who are trying to depose Nancy Pelosi are not progressives. They are, it is a faction of the party. We've dealt with these people before. They used to call them blue dogs, mm-hmm. new Dems, whatever. This is a group of people who, of, of right-wing Democrats, just like 
the Freedom Caucus in the House, in the Republican um, Caucus, mm-hmm. is right-wing Republicans. It's the same people. It's just within their each of their coalitions. It's and they are trying to depose Pelosi because they they basically want to have veto power over this progressive house. It's not the other way around and it's being misinterpreted throughout the media and yep. it's very annoying. Yeah, no it is. <coughs> it is and there are there are reasons uh, for progressives to uh, challenge a lot of what uh, Nancy Pelosi has done over the years, but uh, yeah, it's not it's not a, a progressive uprising. These are the these are a lot of these uh, centrist uh, uh, Democrats who ran on the idea, uh, you know, trying to win over red state Republicans, saying they opposed Nancy Pelosi, essentially because. Fox News has been opposed to Nancy Pelosi. Donald Trump has targeted Nancy Pelosi. So it seems like it's a bunch of folks trying to do Fox News and Donald Trump's bidding uh, when they're targeting Pelosi. Well, that's how it looks to me. And I, and I do think that, that's, that that is the case. I mean, this is, these are people who believe that the, that the Democratic Party is moving too far left and they want to stop that, and the way that they see to do it is to leverage their power, the same way, by the way, that the Freedom Caucus does in the House. They, they also want to leverage their power, um, and they are, they are also saying that the Republican Party is too far left. So we're dealing with a very, very similar dynamic. Now, there are many fewer of them in the, in the Democratic Caucus, and there is a much larger group of progressives, especially now after this election. So, you know, my feeling is that it probably won't work. And there is a reason why they want to get rid of Pelosi. And the reason is, is that she's very, very good at the job. She is and, very good. And, and look, as I said earlier, I, you know, she is not going to live forever, and she shouldn't, and there should be a new group. But I think maybe we're going to end up, at the end of the day, thanking her for hanging on as she did through this period, this very tumultuous period, and waiting for this new wave of Democrats Mm -hmm. to come in in order to get this new group into power. I think if she had chosen, you know, I mean, who would it be in the Democratic caucus that you would say, golly, I really wish they were in power right now? I mean, there are some, there are a few, but for the most part, I think it's this new energy that's going to be the leadership going forward. Mm-hmm. And I think we may end up thanking her for kind of hanging on as long as she did and doing a great job. And and, and she can be pushed uh, policy-wise. Yeah. She can be pushed to the left, and she should be. But she'd been remarkably, she was remarkably effective uh, as far as, you know, getting legislation passed. And I wish, I mean, it's interesting that, it's not Chuck Schumer over in the Senate who is being targeted yeah. by Democrats and Fox News. Uh, I, I'd love to see him moved out, frankly. I think he's been completely ineffective. Um, so I think it's notable that it is uh, Pelosi, who was very effective, who who is being targeted now. Uh, yeah, you know, by Fox. Well, it's and a Reddit. little strange to go after the person who just you know oversaw the winning of, of yes. thirty-nine seats, but the guy who lost over in the in the Senate gets reaffirmed by accl- acclamation. I know. But, you know, I, I I honestly think that you know I think Nancy Pelosi is a very is a very very um, effective uh, you know legislator and an effective leader and. What we need now, we have two years facing us here that are going to be tremendously difficult and tumultuous. I think we know that. We've got a presidential race with a bunch of Democrats running, and God only knows (laughs) what's going to happen with that, but that race is on now. 
and they, you know who uh, the the only power center we have is in the house and they have to put they have to do the oversight if their duty they've got to start doing that the the republicans have completely abdicated their mm-hmm. constitutional obligations and you know the democrats have to put forward uh, a positive agenda and i think you know we're seeing that happen which is they're talking about doing electoral reform is one of their very first things they're going to put up there and hopefully that becomes a fundamental platform in the democratic um you know mm-hmm. policy matrix and you know i think it's also they're going to put forward other reforms and this is really something very very positive that they're going to have to do it's they've got a lot on their plate it's not going to be easy and it needs it requires somebody who knows the job this is just not a time for a learning curve we can do that two years from now if we manage to save the country um by you know dumping trump and the republican majority but right now, it really requires somebody who's got those kind of skills, and she does have them. She's proved it in the past. So, right. you know, I, I hope that we end up, and I feel strongly that we will, because she's already doing smart things. I mean, right. She's putting progressives onto committees. She's doing, you know, she's basically starting the power sharing. She knows how to do this. So I want to get to, uh, before we run out of time here, because you've been writing about this all week. Uh, enough with those Democrats. Uh, let's talk <laughs> about what you've been writing about. Uh, Donald Trump, from all media reports, uh, as well as what we can pretty much all just see with our own eyes. Donald Trump seems to have taken a very, very dark turn since the election. Something seems to be going on. Uh, I, I guess the question is, is it the election results that he's responding to? Is it the Mueller probe closing in? Uh, or is it all of the above as you see it, Heather? I think it's all of the above. I mean, I, I wrote a piece earlier in the week uh, for Salon. hmm uh, in which I talked about the fact that I think that, you know, there's one overriding thing that sort of is bothering him. Um, you know, I, and I think the Mueller probe is really the thing that's getting under his skin. He he knows things now that he didn't know before. Uh, you know, putting Whitaker, uh, this, uh, you know, the Jeff Sessions replacement, who is nothing more than a, you know, toady uh, for his administration and has been a mole but hasn't had access to the Mueller um, investigation until now. Mm-hmm. I think Trump knows things that are coming and, and that that has him very nervous. But I also think that some of this has to do with the fact that when he went out in the campaign and was campaigning on the red wave and saying, we're going to do it, and he put a lot of himself into it. Mm-hmm. And I think he knows that it's a little dissonant for him to now, number one, he, he blamed the the, the people who lost for failing to fully embrace him. That was a very, you know, kind of a creepy thing. Even I would suspect some Republicans are going, oh, you know, that's kind of a, a, a you know, not a, not a very uh, decent thing to do to mm-hmm. the people who lost. I don't think... And I some think of them, by the way, Heather, some of them, like Mia Love in Utah, she has not even necessarily lost yet. They're still trying to uh, figure out that election and those results. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just, it was, a, it was a very, you know, it was a very indecent thing to do. And, you know, he... But what it showed was is that, you know, Trump doesn't know how to lose. He doesn't know how to do that. But he does have a sense that he, that he, being a loser, you know, as his, he puts it, mm-hmm. but losing is the one thing that he cannot really do because he can blame other people all he wants but there are bound to be some members of his of his cult of his following who the reason they are there is because he has defied gravity 
And he's defied it over and over again. His bankruptcies, his business, you know, they, you know, and, and, and winning over Hillary Clinton by hook or by crook, making it through, constantly sort of, um, you know, walking that tightrope and not falling off. Well, there was a little, there's a little shakiness there um, after, after Tuesday's mm-hmm. election. And I think that that really has him bothered because you can't really fake it. You know, he can say that the election was stolen by Democrats or whatever, but you know, you can't say that 39 seats were stolen, right? I mean, that's just not not even even to his cult. That's a bit much. Well, so, and, and I think that was telling because you wrote uh, in in one of your pieces on this that uh, his followers failed him. Uh, he feels that his followers failed him by not voting in great enough numbers to defy all the predictions and prove that he is the biggest winner in American political history. But I feel like uh, that may answer a question uh, and his mood in response to it uh, that uh, you know many of us have wondered about. He had predicted this red wave repeatedly, which everyone in the reality-based world, of course, saw as nonsense. But uh, there has been this question of whether he actually believes his own nonsense or not. And the fact that he would be somehow surprised by the loss that he saw in the midterm suggests that he really had and maybe does convince himself that his lies are reality, it seems to me. And now he is confused and doesn't know what to do about it. Does that make any sense? Sure. I mean, you know, look, the guy's clearly unstable, and we've known that from the beginning, and he seems to be losing his grip more and more, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think after that, after the election, we, we've been seeing, and everybody's reporting that, that he's just completely freaking out in the White House, and that he's, you know, willy-nilly firing. Melania Trump is coming in and firing people. I mean, you know, I mean, this is, it's really, it's always crazy town there, but it's particularly bad now. And, you know, I do think that there is some method to his madness, however, and, and you can kind of see it with the Mueller investigation. And, you know, Leslie Stahl from CBS, she had reported back, I don't know, some months ago that she had asked Trump in Trump Tower right after the election, you know, are you going to keep bashing the press are you going to keep going after it? it's kind of tired it's boring you do it over and over again and he's and he said to her he said oh i do it for a reason i aim to discredit and demean you so that when you write negative things about me no one will believe it so part of his strategy and this applies to the intelligence community it applies to the department of justice it applies to the Mueller probe it even applies to the electoral system Trump goes out there and just attacks, 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 and say they're all liars, they're all frauds, they're all con men, they're all, you know, deep state conspirators, whatever it is he's claiming. In order, he thinks that this is how he will be saved. It's, a, it's not a political strategy, it's a survival strategy. It's for him to try and make it through, which he's doing, I think, on a day-to-day basis. I think that election shook him. And yeah. it may be that what he knows now about the Mueller probe and what he sees coming through these questions that he's that have been submitted to him or what witnesses have who've been called before the the prosecutors or the grand jury are telling him or even maybe just what he's reading in the newspapers that he that he he doesn't know if that strategy is going to work because as much as he tries to demean all these people you know in the process he's been demeaning himself and discrediting himself and as crazy as he is and i do think he's crazy and i think he's also not very smart he uh, on some you know kind of feral survival level (laughs) survival instinct that he has 
I think he may be losing faith in that. I think he may be starting to go, wow, you know, maybe I'm not going to be, you know, I'm dancing as fast as I can, and it's not working. Yeah, you can only, uh, you know, put off these things and and keep keep going with these lies, it seems, for so long before it becomes plain that they were lies. You conclude in one of your columns at, at Salon this week, uh, the one titled Con Man Exposed, Trump's Acting So Erratic Because Midterms Made Him Look Like a Loser. You write that once a con man is exposed, he blows town and moves on to the next mark. But Donald Trump is the president of the United States. He's trapped and he has nowhere else to go. And Heather, that may be what is most terrifying at this point uh, yep. and what may make this moment really uh, the most dangerous so far uh, as uh, how he might react to all of this. And um, when he does, we'll be calling you, Heather. Uh, <laughs> I'll be here hanging on by my fingernails. It may not be very long. Heather Digby Parton, uh, you can find her work, of course, at salon.com and at digbysblog.blogspot.com. And you should follow her on the Twitters at digby56. Heather, I look forward to speaking with you again soon, sort of. <laughs> right back at you, Brad. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you. Okay, we got to get out of here. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Brad blog and I have to always give my thanks to those of you who help us stay on our public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate if you haven't done that ever or lately please consider doing so bradblog.com slash donate where you can make a one-time donation of any amount you like or even better a monthly subscription of any amount you like. We'd like to keep the uh, broadcast free for all, but we can't do it without your help. All right, that is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>